All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. <clears throat> Hopefully, you'll mostly hear me. So, no microphone today, which I may need it. But sometimes I had a professor who was, uh, had severe Parkinson's, and one of the things that eventually was affected his throat, and he'd preach. But he'd almost whisper. And at first you're like, that's awful. But then all of a sudden, everyone's like on the edge of their seat, like trying to hear what he's saying. So it has its own effect. You know? If you're really loud, that can work. But sometimes if you're really quiet and everyone's, everyone's listening, it works too. But let's go ahead and pray and we'll jump back in. Father, thank you for this morning and this week and just our time now as we look to what it is to be an approved workman, to study your word, uh, to be faithful to it. And Lord, just to have the conviction both of uh, its blessings and of uh, just the requiredness of being faithful to put in the time that we want to know not what we think or what others think, but we want to know what you think and have a right way to divide it rightly so that we might know what it says, but also know the impact that it has on our lives and on the church. So help us in that as we look to those issues this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so we're finally moving from observation. So I believe we were talking, this is session eight. So I spent seven sessions on observation. Uh, we're going to basically spend three quarters of a session on interpretation. And the reason for it is if you do the observation work and you've done all the work of reading and rereading and really grasping with that first question of studying the Bible, which is, what does the text say? And you, you actually feel really confident, I know what it says. Then the next question, what does it mean, is a lot easier. If you try to go to interpretation, what does the text mean? And you don't know what it says, it's like Monopoly, you know. It's like, no, go straight to jail, don't pass go, don't collect $200. Like, you, you, you can't do that. And so that's why it's, I think, in the same way, this will actually end up being the core 10 sessions, and then we'll have a couple bonus sessions that'll talk more, thank you, uh, more on narrative, and so we'll do uh, three sessions on, or two sessions on narrative later, just kind of, there are unique challenges in the Old Testament, and so um, there are going to be times where understanding the genre is going to be very valuable, so we're going to spend extra time there, which will bring us a little bit back to observation, but I want to move into this idea of what does the text mean. So we've done our, all of our work, which is, uh, let's see, should ask an interactive question. Um, anybody, what, what are we looking for in the observation phase of what does the text say? What, what pieces of information do you feel like, before you go to interpretation, what do you have to know? Author. Audience. Audience. Purpose. 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 Central theme. Occasion. Occasion, yeah. So author, audience, occasion, purpose, theme. Um, and because, going back to this early slide on the background information, this helps you answer all the questions. And you're going to be sitting there with a piece of paper, making notes, and some of this will come in the front, like a lot of epistles. Paul, an apostle, a slave of Christ. Um, some of it won't have an author, like Hebrews um, stated. But it's going to really help you when it's... Because the what is it saying... And especially when you get into interpretation, who that audience is, what's their background, what's their information, um, you really do have to understand that to rightly 
interpret it because we are looking for the original meaning when we interpret. So we're not yet to application implication, which is what does it mean for us? Um, but we are looking for the original meaning, what it meant to the original audience. And then once we know what it says, what it meant for the original audience, then we can move towards the third part of application, which we'll do next time. We're also going to cover at the end of this session a little bit of um, correlation or the analogy of Scripture and, and looking at multiple Scriptures and comparing, make sure when something's difficult that it is right. So uh, just a reminder, the author wrote to a particular audience with a reason, um, with a specific purpose. And then again, we get those four things, i.e. author, audience, reason being occasion, purpose. Then we can understand what's the main subject of that book and understand that. Um, an example of why we need to do this, why we need to be careful, why you need to keep reading and rereading and, and work hard to understand. We've, we've gone from the biggest literary unit, which is that idea of the, the subject or the central theme of the book or whatever literature you're looking at. What's the point? When they sat down, they wanted to write a book. What was the whole thing about? And we try to look and discover that and then go down to paragraph level what each paragraph is trying to say about that central theme, and then down to sentences, and then down to words. And so that's the background, that's the, the breakdown we want to work through as we study our Bibles. We want to go from the, the largest unit down to the smallest unit, and then when you interpret, you're basically working backwards now. Now that you kind of have the context, you know the biggest to the smallest, now you can work backwards and you're putting it together and what does this word mean in this sentence and what does this sentence mean in this paragraph and what does this paragraph mean in light of the whole thing. Because I love this in Second Peter where he says about Paul that also in all his letters speaking in them of these things in which are some things he's talking about Paul hard to understand which the untaught and the unstable distort as they also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now, this is another great example. Without looking at this and spending time, the context of Second Peter is false teachers. Um, the occasion, why he has to write them is because there's these false teachers. And so it makes a ton of sense as you get to the end of that letter that he's saying, hey, I get it. I know Paul. Some of the stuff he writes is hard. And if you're unstable and if you're untaught, you are going to twist them. And so we don't want to do that. We want to recognize there is a danger of that, which kind of goes back to the couple original sessions that there is a conviction here just on the way we communicate that um, there is this idea of single meaning. And if this is true, then this can't, the, you know, the same thing that is opposite can't also be true at the same time. So just be aware of that. All right, so kind of, we're going to go through a few examples um, We'll see kind of where we're at and how far we're going to go. Maybe if you guys want to offer up one, we might do one if you go. You have a problem passage for us. Um, but here's a pretty good one. Uh, so open up because we'll need to probably get, I think, in there beyond this. This is to 1 Corinthians. All right. Does anyone remember, I guess go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
when we talk, at some point we talked about this, kind of what is the main subject, the central theme that he is driving at in 1 Corinthians? If you don't remember, that's okay. Does anyone remember? All right. Well, I feel like we cheated at some point. I think I thought this was a good example before. Um, but if you get into chapter 1, and he's addressing, uh, just as a good example, verse 12. If you go to verse 10, you're going to see, remember we talked about repetition, but a lot of the consistent things throughout here, what he wants, what he's exhorting them in verse 10, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And as you go through all the problems in Corinthians, it, it all comes underneath this umbrella of unity, that he wants them to come to agreement and recognize you have all these factions, which he describes here in verse 12. Uh, I mean that each one of you saying, I am Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Which is to say, no, you're baptized in Christ. You're all believers. You've got to get along. You've got to stop suing one another. You've you got to stop um, sitting against one another and all the contents of this book. Now, you need to know that because author, audience, occasion, purpose, theme. Because you get to, at least the way I feel like I was taught, at least to a degree. In fact, I even remember... Um, Sunday night, Grace Church, and when I was in California, they had an evening service, and I can remember having this conversation with somebody, because we were just talking, um, this is 2000, maybe six or seven, and so Mark Driscoll was popular, um, Grace Church was definitely, um, not completely, but uh, MacArthur has a stronger stance on alcohol, he's more of a teetotaler, not everyone at church was, and um, obviously one of the things that came along with the Young Wrestlers Reformed and Driscoll especially was, he was really into drinking, right? Churches are in bars and everything involves beer. And so um, and everyone wanted to quote Luther, who loved beer, and Calvin was paid in wine. Um, and so both that and like say smoking, and you can maybe throw tattoos in here, this would be a big passage to go to that was argued at the time, and I can remember having this discussion, that you shouldn't do that, and is there a biblical reason why you shouldn't smoke, why you shouldn't drink, or you shouldn't get a tattoo, and typically, if anyone tried to put it a passage, they try to say, all right, well, what about 1 Corinthians 3? And our bodies are a temple of the Lord. Who's heard that to some degree? Our bodies are a temple of the Lord. Um, which, leaving that concept aside, the real question we have to ask is 1 Corinthians 3 teach that in that way we're the temples the, of the Lord. So, go to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 where he says, Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God or the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him. For the sanctuary of God is holy and that is what you are. And if you're looking, and this is where it does help when you have a little bit of language behind you, because in English, we use you for you and I guess if you're in the South, you could say y'all. Um, but in this case, this is plural. And so in the context, he's saying, verse 16, do you, church, Corinthians, plural, know that you, plural, church of Corinthians, are a sanctuary of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all. If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him. Let the sanctuary of God is holy. That is what you, y'all, are. 
Let no one, no, or no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in his age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. <clears throat> for the wisdom, he goes on, of the world of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise that they are useless. And so, the context of the, for one says, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. We'll get verse 4 and verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, and God was causing the growth. So that's all this context of what the Lord is doing in this church. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundations with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, in essence, talking about the church. And then he says in if any man's work is burned up, which again is ministry, Paul's Paul, etc., he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet through fire. Do you not know, verse 16, that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So, we're doing kind of what does this mean? And it can't mean two things because it means one thing. It says one thing. It might have an implication, uh, many implications for you and your life and where you are very specifically. Um, but what does it say? And if we take it as plural within the context, what, how would anyone feel free? How would you, what would you say it's saying? Right, so church, like stop fighting. You're God's temple. Like there's not a sanctuary in the New Testament. It's the Spirit doesn't dwell in the tabernacle, uh, Ark of the Covenant. No, the Spirit dwells in believers. It's in the church. And so this is talking very specifically about the church and in plural. And so there might be really good reasons. Um, and I would say Proverbs might be one of them that you would be very cautious with alcohol because it's one of the things, if you're going to ruin your life, um, easy money, easy sex, and alcohol pretty much come up over and over again in Proverbs. So my boys know, like, I, it's not a sin to drink, but you better be careful. Um, so there are good reasons for it to be careful. Um, you know, smoking, not good for you. I, but I'm not going to tell someone they can't smoke. I'm not going to tell someone they can't drink. And same thing goes with um, tattoos as well. And again, you can't say, you're going to have to go somewhere else, I'll put it that way, to try to argue for a position um, because you can't get it here. And this would be, again, how I feel like it's been taught most places, but it goes back to that central idea of what is he discussing? Um, Because the flip side would be true as well, which I think we'd all realize we're in a lot of trouble if we take that argument on the other side and we say, okay, if that's the correct interpretation our bodies are the temple, and we have to take care of them or else we're in sin. Um, I don't know if you all have looked at the, uh, you know, health association's BMIs lately. I'm not that tall. It does not say I can weigh this much. I mean, I'm not, like, severely obese, but I am definitely obese on their scale. Um, and you can only fight that so long and say it's muscle, you know, but it's all muscle. Um, And I would say as well, then you better throw in there with all those other things that you're like, well, it's bad for your body. Well, you know, 
every church, we call them fellowship meals, but you know, traditionally the potlucks, the pot trusts, um, there's typically a lot of sugar on that uh, table. And you'd have to say, no sugar. But we're okay with sugar, we're okay with Mountain Dew, um, but we're not okay with, you know. And so that's where it doesn't work either way you put it. And that's what you have to go, all right, what is it saying? And then we're able to say, what did he mean by this when we understand it within its context? Again, taking this verse, this sentence, and particularly the temple or the sanctuary of God, that was that phrase, and interpreting it in light of the whole. Questions on that? All right, that kid's back there. Um, inaccurate interpretation leads to inaccurate theology and practice. That is, what, what's the risk? Why do we want to be careful? Um, it's the same idea, and I, you don't have to, nothing in the Bible says you have to go to seminary, or you have to have letters behind or in front of your name, but this is the same idea of, but we expect people to work hard, be proven, um, you get into elder qualifications. Why? Because this is exactly what happens uh, when people aren't grounded in the word and don't understand how to study and interpret and apply the scriptures. They're going to take an interpret an accurate interpretation, which is going to lead to inaccurate theology and practice. Historical footnote: um, If you guys read on the Asbury revival, um, that aside. Um, you know, you can read quite a bit on revivals in general. Um, I think, at least I heard this is, I think, the fifth one lately at Asbury. So definitely, like, I, I would say this one is, is they're, they're trying to prop it up and use social media. But um, a couple historical ones, you know, the first, second grade awakening that we talk about historically, one of the big problems with um, especially the second one is a lot of people with the tent revivals went, preached, People heard a little bit about Jesus. Um, there probably was a lot of people who did get converted, but they can trace pretty much in American history. It's really fascinating. But a lot of, whether it's the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witness, um, a lot of um, <clears throat> cults came out of those revivals because people got a hold and said, I'm a Christian, and they got a hold of the Bible, and they went, and they weren't ever discipled. And you can see from that era, a lot of things sprung out of it. And I go back to this, and it's because they didn't accurately interpret. And now you're convinced, because the question we're really asking is, what is God saying? And if you answer, well, I'm confident God says this, you know, now this is going to put a burden on somebody's life to act or to live or believe a certain way. So we want to be careful with how we interpret. All right, let's go to uh, Matthew 5. There's a lot, actually, in the Sermon on the Mount that we could, we could go over here. Um, one, let's ask a question. Um, this, let's, uh, well, let's read it. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is 
the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes or no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. So question, does God prohibit oath-taking? Insert, we don't say oath a lot, vows. I did a wedding on Friday. Thoughts? Can you make a vow? Can you make an oath? Okay. What's he saying here? Which, of course, this is where, this is so hard. That's why it's so hard to do interpretation. It's like, you'd have to look at Matthew, and you'd have to look at the Sermon on the Mount, and then you'd be, like, all over Proverbs, and so. So, go ahead. Did you say? Which, contextually, is what's going on. Um, that they're basically, um, at the context of summary, quick summary, the context of Matthew 5, which I do think is to say what Jesus is calling them towards is consistency. Um, the kind of, what is he addressing as he walks through all of these different things, particularly starting in verse 21, it's unique because normally when we think of hypocrisy, we think of someone um, who externally, like they believe one thing, you go to church, you say you love Jesus, but then on the weekend you live like someone who, you know, immorally, and you go, wow, that's a hypocrite. In Jesus' day, and his criticism is the opposite. So the opposite here, it's still hypocrisy, but he's worried about people that are being righteous on the outside. And their heart is wrong. They're not doing it with the right attitude. They're doing the outward actions for show, which he's not being critical of the outward action, specifically as much as he's saying, no, you have to be consistent. Uh, You need to have the right motive along with the right action. So in this case, you have this issue of, let your yes be yes, your no be no. And he is addressing this issue by saying, it's not that you can't go make a legal agreement with somebody. But what he's saying is, let your yes be yes, let people trust you. Like your handshake, at least in the American culture, should be good enough. You don't need to swear by heaven. You don't need to um, swear by the footstool or Jerusalem, which were common phrases, or by the city of the great king. You don't need to do that because people trust you because you're a Christian. And you're going to do what you say. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And in essence, what he's saying is you don't have to make, you shouldn't have to make those oaths. Um, there is an issue, I think, where he goes into as far as I don't think you should be swearing by heaven or swearing by um, the Lord or some of those things. Or, um, again, being the kind of person which the Sermon on the Mount's after who has to always tell everyone, I will do that and I promise to do that and all that. They should just go, well, I asked you to do it. You said you'd do it. Case closed. And that's what he's teaching there. Um, and I, it's not meant to be a broad scoping um, thing on never take an oath, never make a promise. It's just to say, do what you say. And there should be no question in your character. Um, because if you say yes, you're going to do it. If you tell them, I can't do that, then they're going to trust you both ways. Um, let's go down in five. Um, let's see... All right, let's go to verse 43. All right, 38. Let's just keep going. Because like I said, there's a bunch that pops in the Sermon on the Mount. 
38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And anyone who wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your garment also. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Uh, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect. I think that idea there is whole as your heavenly Father is perfect or whole, complete. That is to say, you're consistent on the inside and the outside. You're perfect, you're whole, not perfection. So you could say, that's a good example. Um, just a, are we called to be perfect? Jesus says to be perfect. Um, I mean, the answer ultimately, Jesus, is after a kind of perfection, you could say, I think the Sermon on the Mount is going to, um, oh, what does Calvin call it? Oh, and I'm off the top of my head. Oh, the impossible ideal. Maybe that's what Calvin called it. Um, there is a way in which the Sermon on the Mount, I do think Jesus is trying to use it as a mirror, where your answer to all this should be guilt, 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 guilt. Um, because there are those who thought they were obedient to the law, and he's flipping this around going like, I don't think so. Do you hate anyone? Have you ever hated anyone? Then you hated your brother and you're a murderer. Um, but also, he's not calling for perfection in that same way. Um, he's calling for wholeness, which in Christ, of course, is what we're, we're after. But you can see how someone would get to a doctrine of perfection just by that word in English being there um, to some degree. Um, but you have to take the rest of Scripture, which is what we're going to talk about next. But question for the whole thing here, um, can Christians go to war? What would you say if I said, no, love your enemy? We're called to love them, pray for them. What do you say? Right. Yeah, and Jesus is reinterpreting the Old Testament. No, uh, um, right, so I think you can make an argument, but I still think you've got to deal with, does this say that or does it not say that? Um, and a lot of people that wrestle with this, uh, let's just say, um, I know a lot of Nebraskans have Mennonite backgrounds. Like, this is their reason for being pacifists. Because they can't square Matthew 5 with being a soldier. Um, you could further go, why do you square Matthew 5 with being a police officer? How do you square Matthew 5 with, I mean, any of those things that are going to take some level of the, the prosecution side of things? So I just leave that out there because we, if you're, you're studying this and you're teaching this, <coughs> you have to be able to say, this is what it says. And then if it says, love your net, you, know, you have to be able to explain what does it mean and not mean before you can go to an application. So that's just a really good example where it's harder than you think. Because yes, we're all sitting back like, of course, I mean, the average American is going to sit back and go, that's crazy. Of course, a Christian can be a police officer. But sometimes you're going to get into places and you're going to study and go, I'm going to let the text 
wherever it goes, I'm going to go. And if this means I can't be a police officer, if this means I can't go to war, then I guess I can't go to war. Um, and you might actually, as you read something, you, how difficult they actually are. Because again, if that's what it means, then it's binding on your life. Um, so that's just a good example of working through that. Um, again, we don't work through it all together, but I mean, I, I think ultimately um, there is a context to what he's discussing here in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I think having a distinction between the government, individual Christians, and those things. Um, in other words, as an individual Christian, um, this is what you're called to be, um, and vengeance is not yours. However, like when you're employed by the sword, which God gives to the state, i.e. soldiers, police officers, I think that's where you can act as their arm in a righteous way. Uh, Romans 13. And we don't have to go through that one, but it's just to say, broadly speaking, Crystal walked in and I said COVID. I don't know why. Masking, COVID. Here we go. Uh, but we'll just briefly introduce that because this is one of those passages you have to work through. It got brought up a lot in uh, 2020 where every person, verse 1 of Romans 13, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist have been appointed by God. And therefore, whoever resists the authority by not putting on a mask has opposed the ordinance of God and they have opposed who, those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Is that the right interpretation, Chris? Uh, 100%. I feel like you sat on Jesse's, didn't you? That? Did you sit on Jesse Johnson's no, seminar? Yeah, but... uh, you don't even know the answer then. I'm going no. <laughs> <laughs> well, so again, before, and that's where it's always dangerous, right? We always want to, we have impulses like, that can't be true. It's like, well, it might be true. And again, we want to come without those. To, we all have a little bit of tendency, presupposition. There's no way around it. We're human beings. But we want to try to lay as much of that aside, approach the text as neutrally as humanly possible, um, and ask those questions. And so that is <coughs> a passage you should be wrestling with with anything um, with submission to the government. What do you do if, and again, this is where you're going to get into the, this next point, which we're going to cover briefly, um, which is you're going to have to correlate it with the rest of Scripture. Because there are places you can think of, I'm sure if you, if you think at the top of your head, like say the book of Acts, where they didn't obey government. Well, how is that true and this is true? Well, he clearly then has to be talking about something very specific here, which when you get down, when he talks about the nature of government, which is to punish evil and reward good, within that context, hey, submit, you're not to be rebellious in those ways. But the next question comes, what if they ask you to sin? What if they ask you to stop preaching the gospel like in Acts? Well, then that's when you go, why rather we're called to submit to God than to men. Just another good example, though, of interpretation. Uh, anybody have one they want to do? Oh, that's like stump the pastor or something. But... All right, well. But yeah, the, yeah, the plans that you have. Actually, that might be a good one. That might be used to, a good one next week. It's where I have compassion on somebody um, where they hang that verse, right? Because I get what they're, like, on a implication side, God had plans and has plans for Israel. 
right? And and so, but yes, it's like the same God that we serve is the same God has made promise to us. He's going to be faithful. He has plans for us too. But yes, it's a little bit of that danger of like, you're usually communicating what it means, interpretation is this, versus the what it means is this is for Israel and their future and the promises God has for them. And it's not, doesn't mean that for the church. That's not the interpretation. Implication, you know, can you get there of encouragement? Like, I'm encouraged by that verse. I can, I can be encouraged by that verse because I serve the same God who's going to be faithful to Israel, who's going to be faithful to his church. It's, it's primarily the, Am I being too nice? It's, uh, yeah. I think, it's, I, I think, I mean, I think the end of it is what is where people are, are really right, hijacking right. it personally. Oh, yeah. yeah. for the church. Right, right. Well, well, and I, the other hijacky of that is the plans usually being prosperity. So, yeah, plans prosper. All right. I need a little bit of suffering theology in First Peter and go, oh, wait, it's God's will for you to suffer. Wait a minute. I don't like that. If that's his plan, I don't like it. Where's First Peter? Um, well, and so that'd be another one, though. Like this idea of correlation, some people call it, um, what does the text mean in relation to the whole? Historically, uh, at least in the Reformed tradition, this has been called the analogy of faith or this idea, if you've heard the phrase before, it comes from the Westminster Confession, Scripture interpreting Scripture, which simply means, from the Westminster Confession, uh, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So, it's really important when it comes to interpretation because you get to places where, wait a minute, Romans 13.1 seems to imply always submit to government. First of all, remember your mom who said never say always and never. Uh, and then secondly, you go, is there any other place where you have examples? And then you get to like an ax and you go, oh, okay, like that, I, these can't. These have to mean the same things, and that's what it means by scripture interpreting. They can't disagree with one another. Um, where I'd say Romans thirteen one, there's a sense in which it's clear to an extent, but it's not exhaustive. And that's when you get all these issues. Um, is the Sermon on the Mount exhaustive? No, and it's not meant to be exhaustive. Um, it doesn't mean it's not clear. It doesn't mean it means ten things. It means one thing, but when you start teaching, especially, and you're teaching others, and again, it goes back to whatever you say the scripture means, you're telling someone that's what God says it means. So there's a high threshold of, before I'm going to put this weight or this pressure on you, this burden to obey something, I want to make sure that this agrees with the rest of scripture, which of course implies um, that you know scripture. And I would say part of this class is to encourage you that Daily reading your Bible is a waste of time. And intentionally read books of the Bible. Like, don't read a plan where you go through the Bible in a year or two years. Um, get in First John or Second John. or like, like, Commit to know one book. Read Ephesians every day for a month so you know Ephesians. Um, but the other side of me is like, that's bad advice, don't take it. Because do both. Because you're going to have to study the Word to show yourself approved. Be intentional, which we're talking about. But you also need to know, in general, what the Scripture is saying. The only way to do that is by 
consistently reading through it all. Is if you're left to your own whims, what do you want to study this week? You'll just start to neglect the first two-thirds of it because I've been there. I get it. Um, and so that's where I'd say this is where I would say both study a text or study a book of the Bible, read, reread, go through this process, but also you want to be in Scripture in general, and that is where yearly Bible reading plans work really well. So don't cut that and give it to Todd Tyler, or he'll beat me out. All right. So another one, correlation. Um, Sermon on the Mount. Like I said, there's all kinds of fun things in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with that measure you measure, it will be measured to you. Oh, this this is a favorite. If my kids knew this verse, they'd quote it to me all the time. You can't judge me, Dad. Um, we'll do this, and then we'll go back to the context of Matthew 7. <clears throat> then you have 1 Corinthians 5, which we've already talked Corinthians a little bit. They're fighting with one another. And in the midst of that, he wants you, so it's really interesting, because in the midst of his arguing for, you have the same mind in Christ. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? And he has a whole context here of church discipline. Are you not to judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God will judge. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. As I said, we're not doing as much work as we could or we should. But just looking at Matthew 7 and 1 Corinthians 5, at first glance, you're going to feel like these are saying the exact opposites. Like Jesus is like, don't judge people, man. And Paul's like, kick them out. If they're wicked, pull them out, drag them out by their their ears. Well, who's right? And what should we do in the church? And that's where it's back to when you see these kinds of things, be careful and don't be too quick to interpret before you, you ask some questions on what does this mean and could, if it means this, i.e., Matthew 7, never judge, which is how 99% of the world and every media outlet is going to cover um, a lot of things or um, LGBTQ issues. Don't judge, don't judge. Matthew 7, it's in your Bible. You're not being a Christian. You're going, well, no. There actually is a New Testament verse that says we judge. But we're not judging. Providence isn't judging Gretna. Providence isn't judging the state of Nebraska. Um, I'm not going to practice some level of discipline or admonishment on somebody who doesn't go to church here. But if you do, you're an insider, you're part of the church, he's like, then you deal with sin in it. So by just looking at 1 Corinthians 5 and the whole idea of church discipline, which of course, even in Matthew, so this is Matthew 7, um, and he's going to Matthew 18 talk about church discipline there as well. You're going, well, Jesus can't mean don't judge in Matthew 7 and judge people and confront them with sin and if they don't repent remove them he can't mean two different things in Matthew 7 and Matthew 18 just as an example so going to Matthew 7 we got to ask those questions then okay well then that helps you go it doesn't mean it kind of strikes one of the options off the list it can't mean that so what does it mean Um, part of this goes back to the Sermon on the Mount it's structured what he is doing in it. 
Um, and then the bigger context through verse 6 it says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. And he goes on, though, and says, And why do you look at the speck that is in your own brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. Or how can you say, um, uh, or you hypocrite, verse 5, First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and tear you to pieces. Six is really interesting because in its context, it's, well, why did you add that? Which is a great, this is the fun nature of Bible study. Why quote a proverb? Um, why add that in there in this context? But if you keep reading, so just in seven, you go, okay, well, there seems to be a level in what she's saying, don't judge. And not so much, what's he saying? Because if you don't deal with the speck in your eye, you're going to be judged with the same measure you use to judge other people. So, verse 5, you hypocrite, which gets back to the whole nature of the Sermon on the Mount, that you inconsistent person who's living one way, but inwardly is wicked, um, don't go around, you arrogant hypocrite, and judge people in that way. Take the speck out of your own eye first. And even though this doesn't, First Corinthians 5 gives a little more information of where you can kind of clearly delineate, okay, well, which way, where, who do we do this with? Do it in the church, which there's a way in which 6 is getting after that, which is do not give what is holy to dogs, do not throw your pearls before swine. He's saying, okay, let me use some proverbial language here, though, but like, don't go around and trying to correct everyone um, that's an unbeliever. Unbelievers are going to act like unbelievers. Um, you can give good counsel, but it's different. Um, if someone claims to be a Christian, now I've got something that I can kind of grab and go after and say, but you say you profess that you are in Christ. Um, another one which we, I don't have here is in James, but James will talk similarly. Um, well, let's go there real quick. Why not? we got a couple minutes. <clears throat> Just to finish up this correlation before we go to, like I said, an application next week. <clears throat> All right. All right, so you go to chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not slander one another, brothers. He who slanders a brother or judges his brother, slanders the law and judges of the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? At first glance, you're studying, you're going, man, Matthew 7 seems to say don't judge. James 4 seems to say don't judge. I guess 1 Corinthians 5 says I can judge. Matthew 18 seems to imply I can judge. And it's all about the context. Um, 
particularly here, if you look at the greater context of chapter 4, um, I think he's talking particularly about the judgment of deciding whether someone is a Christian or not. And it's not that I don't think you can ever challenge someone or to examine themselves, but I think there is a degree in which he's saying, don't slander one another, brothers, um, by going after them and saying that they are not believers. Um, again, though, what if someone says they're a believer and it's clearly a false teacher? I don't think this applies there. But <clears throat> that's just another one. If you give context, you've got to look at all of it within light of what the argument of James is. Questions? What about Proverbs 24? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. And so, for example, though, I'm just thinking parenting. Um, Let's just say I was taught by my church not to judge. My kids are off the rails. They don't like me giving advice to them because they're kids and I'm a parent. And so I back off. Um, And I just go, well, the Bible tells me I can't judge my kids' behavior. Um. That's where you go, oh, someone actually, when they should be going, actually, you buy it now. There's a right way to do it. Like, this is the gentle as doves, wise as serpents. But you should probably be, no, the Bible's actually, go warn them. If they're running towards the edge and there's no fence, you warn them and say, stop. And you can see how someone, though, the, the church can teach, oh, I just can't do that. And it's like, no, no, it's your responsibility to warn. There's a way to do that lovingly, of course, right? If every time you talk to your kids, it ends in screaming matches, that's probably not great. But there is a way to do it without it ending that way. All right. Anything else? Questions? I put, um, <coughs> there was a series that MacArthur did, I don't know when it was, but it was called Frequently Abused Verses. So right. this was a, um, And it can be a really fun exercise um, to apply these, but I will encourage you to do it right. So, um, where two or three are gathered, Matthew 18. Yeah. Um, there I will be also. Um, yeah, you can get to an answer probably just by looking at the greater context of 18. But you'll be amazed at how much, again, insight comes from pulling all the way back and, again, reverse that and go, okay, well, I, I just can't look at Matthew 18. It, yes, it's good to look at the chapter before and the chapter after in general. But I'm also encouraging to go, well, you got to look at Matthew. What is Matthew trying to do as a whole? And then how does he break those arguments? What argument are you in in 18? Um, and then you can start looking at what does that sentence mean? So, but that's another good, yeah, there, there's lots of good ones out there. Like I said, we're gonna yeah we're gonna talk more about um, narrative in a couple weeks. So, because narrative is another one where it gets it gets a little bit less straightforward. So, but all right, thank you.